Hey, good morning, brothers and sisters. It's, uh, it's great to worship with you today. I'm so glad that you're here. Would you go ahead and open your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Luke? And we're going to be in Luke chapter 18 together this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, maybe you're new with us or you got out of the house late this morning, um, grab one of those pew Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 18. And I want you to follow along with us as we study. While you're turning there real quick, I want to uh, follow up and add just one little bit of clarification to uh, what Pastor Steve mentioned um, about these walls. Uh, every one of these panels is filled top to bottom with unreached people groups. These are individuals who have not heard the name of Christ. They may not have any copy of Scripture in any amount of their heart language. And we're going to join uh, with the work of the gospel around the globe uh, for the rest of this month in prayer. And that's why we want you to set aside time to pray specifically for work among these groups. So don't run out of here this morning when we're finished. Maybe stop, take a look, do some reading. And if your schedule doesn't permit you to come back up and pray uh, during the daytime or on Monday evenings from 7 to 9, then take a picture and then take it home and look at the name of that group and join with us in praying uh, from your home. Uh, next Sunday, we're going to be in the book of Romans, and we're going to look more at what God calls us to do in the way of praying for the spread of the gospel, and that's why these walls are here, to get us active and involved in this. Luke chapter 18 is where we're going to spend our time this morning. I want you to imagine with me the cutest three-year-old you possibly can you just love this kid, and this kid loves you, and this kid uh, has great snuggles and super chubby cheeks, maybe a cute little speech impediment. Everything that makes a three-year-old great is embodied in this kid, and they love you, and you love them, and they come to you, and they say, tie my shoe. Now I want you to imagine... Uh, the grossest high school bully you can. And you may not have to think too hard about that one. But this person just always has a bad attitude. They kind of live with this snarl on their face. They probably don't wear enough deodorant. They smack their gum all the time. That person who's condescending and rude and mean and just a jerk. And imagine that person comes to you and says... Tie my shoe. Now you've got two requests in front of you, and you are fully capable of fulfilling both of those requests, but you know and I know you're only going to fulfill one of those requests. And why is that? You're only going to tie the shoe for the three-year-old because they adore you and you adore them, and that relationship is right. You're not going to tie the shoe of the bully because he is using you and you're not down with that and the relationship is broken. Two requests. You can answer them both. It won't take any more effort to do one than the other, but the relationship dictates how you respond. A common belief is that God hears all prayer. That's true. He does. A mistaken belief is that God acts on all prayer, and the Bible teaches us that, in fact, He does not. He can receive two of the same requests 
and yet relationship will dictate his response to both of those. He has full ability, full power to answer every request that comes to him, but our relationship with him dictates his response. Jesus is going to teach us this morning not how to pray better, but how our prayer lives can actually reveal the state of our relationship with God. So far in our study of prayer on these past few Sundays, we've dealt with the question, what do I say when I pray? That's an important question. It's important that we're thoughtful about the content of our praying, what we say when we approach God in prayer. But today we pivot a bit. We're not looking at what we say when we pray, but rather we're dealing with the question, what does my prayer say about me? What does it reveal about my relationship with the Lord? And in the parable we're going to study this morning, Jesus uses prayer to reveal self-righteousness and true righteousness. And my goal today is to make sure that we are recipients of true righteousness. So I want you to follow along with me as I read Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9. It says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous And looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself God, I thank you that I am not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Who does Jesus tell this parable to? In the context of what we've just read, you might remember last week we talked a little bit about chapter 17. Chapter 17, Jesus is uh, in this verbal conflict with some Pharisees. And then following that, chapter 18, he turns to his disciples and he speaks to them. In the aftermath of this conflict about signs and times of the end of all things, he turns to his disciples to encourage them. Keep praying. In the midst of every heartache and difficulty and hardship that the church faces, continue to pray like the persistent widow who goes to the unjust judge. From that parable, Luke has Jesus turn and tell this second parable, parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. But it's not clear that it happens in the exact same moment. It could be that Jesus spars with the Pharisees, tells the parable of the persistent widow to his disciples, and then pivots back to the Pharisees to share this parable with them. That's very possible. Or it could be that for whatever reason, Luke took this parable in this moment and placed it right here in the middle of chapter 18. But we've got two main characters in this parable. We have a Pharisee and we have a tax collector. What do we know about these two people? We know quite a bit, actually. Well, let's talk first about what we know about the Pharisee. Well, Pharisees are a sect within Judaism. It might be helpful to think about them like a denomination. 
Judaism is a broad umbrella, and under that umbrella are different groups, Pharisees, Sadducees, and others. Just like under Protestantism, it's a big umbrella, but you have Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians and others. So Pharisees are one sect within Judaism. And Pharisees are noted for their piety, their care careful observance of the law, uh, and of their seriousness in worship. Now, Pharisees often get a bad rap by us, but I want you to understand, uh, here's what's positive about the Pharisees. Their concern was about taking the Word of God and making it applicable to the everyday situations of an ever-changing life. They want to empower the people of God to live in obedience to the law of God. And so what they did was they developed a very extensive oral law. You have the written law, the, the Hebrew Bible that gives all the commands of God, and then you have this oral law or this other law by which they apply the law. So if God says, don't work on the Sabbath, what does that mean? What constitutes work? And the Pharisees came up with uh, elaborate explanations to try and help people understand this is what work is and this is what work is not. They were evangelists. They would share in, in the hopes of turning people from their sin to the ways of God. Uh, they were worshipers. They prayed. They were serious, serious, serious about the Word of God. Uh, there are things about the Pharisees that are admirable. But here's the problem. What Jesus explains in his interactions with the Pharisees is that their emphasis on law and rules actually violates the spirit of the law, the very reason God gives us the law, and it turns them into hypocrites and pretenders. And this is why Jesus and the Pharisees so often butt heads throughout his ministry they see Jesus as a rebel, even as a liberal. Jesus recognizes that they are way off base and they are hurting the cause of God in their rejection of him. So Jesus is often at odds with Pharisees in his earthly ministry, but not all of them. He also responds to them with compassion. One notable example is a man named Nicodemus. If you go to John chapter 3, you can hear or read there about Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus turns out to be one of two men who take the body of Jesus off the cross after his death. So Jesus isn't just anti-Pharisee. Uh, he is compassionate, but the Pharisees and Jesus are often at odds with one another. What do we know about tax collectors? Scum of the earth. That's what we know about these tax. I don't mean like IRS agents in general, please don't read into that. I just mean this specific contextual setting, first century Palestine, tax collectors were nasty, nasty people. First century Palestine, the land where Jesus lived and walked, is under the rule of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire took taxes from its subjects. And one of the ways it took taxes was by employing local tax collectors to gather on their behalf. And one of the ways they paid those local tax collectors was by saying, here's the amount you have to raise. These are the taxes we need from your region. And anything you collect over that, you get to keep for yourself. Your salary comes out of the extra that you take. And so what you have then is a practice that is set up for corruption, where tax collectors would pulverize local people 
with heavy-handed taxation, and they would do it just for their own benefit. It was a lucrative business because you have Rome behind you. And especially in the region where Jesus lived, the people who were living as tax collectors were Jewish people. And so they were seen as traitors against their own people, Roman sympathizers, criminals who stole from their very own people. They were some of the worst people, uh, absolute scoundrels uh, among this culture. So we have this parable Jesus gives us with a tax collector and a Pharisee. We've been so conditioned to be compassionate towards the tax collector and angry towards the Pharisee that I think we might lose the power of the story. The original audience would have expected the Pharisee to be the good guy. The tax collector is clearly the bad guy. But in this story, Jesus turns our notions of righteousness on its head. And the good guy is actually the bad guy. The bad guy is the good guy. The righteous one, by our estimation, is actually unrighteous. And the one who would never have the favor of God is the one who walks away justified in this story. I don't know if a modern equivalent would work to try and wrap our minds around the difference between a Pharisee and a a tax collector. It might be if we were to compare the pastor of a big church to the local drug dealer. And Jesus uses these two types of caricatures to help us understand and think about what righteousness truly is, what it means to really and truly be justified in the eyes of God. And so the challenge to you and I as we read and study this parable is we have to find ourselves in the person of the Pharisee, and then we have to strive to live before God with the humility of the tax collector. Jesus helps us in this parable by giving us two indicators of self-righteousness and two indicators of true righteousness. And that's what our focus is on. This parable uses prayer to teach us about righteousness. So let's start first by looking at indicators of self-righteousness. What does that look like? Well, the Pharisees' prayer gives us two indicators of self-righteousness. And the first mistake he makes is wrongly comparing himself to others. How do I know if I'm a self-righteous person? Well, like the Pharisee, I wrongly compare myself to others. Look at verse 11. Jesus says, The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, to be fair... The Pharisee is correct. He is not like other people. He is not greedy as he understands greediness. He lives a pious life, not an unrighteous one. His appetites are in check. His life is disciplined. He's not an adulterer as he understands adultery. And he is definitely not like the tax collector. He does not steal from his own countrymen, nor does he work for the good of Rome. So his assessment of himself is correct in part, but his mistaken assumption is that this comparison is the evidence of his right standing with God. You see, hypocrites will always argue their own righteousness by comparing themselves to someone worse than them. And that's not the comparison that matters. The comparison that matters is not who's worse than me, but how do I stack up against the holiness of God? 
Because I promise you this, you can always find someone worse. You can always argue your case before God by saying, at least I'm not that guy. But that is not the comparison that matters. And we talk about this often here in our church. The comparison that matters is my comparison with God. I can't justify myself by saying, at least I'm not that person. It's sheer foolishness to believe that God shares your high opinion of yourself. It's not that God hates you and thinks poorly of you, but he doesn't have a trophy room with you at the center of it. We have to compare ourselves to God, and in that comparison, our righteousness fails. Our holiness is broken. Had the Pharisee done this, he would have had a different assessment of himself for sure. How do I know if I'm a self-righteous person? I, I might wrongly compare myself to others. A second mistake the self-righteous make is the improper use of God's law. So I want you to look at how the Pharisee argues his case in verse 12. He first says, verse 11, I'm not like these other people. Verse 12, here's how he's better than them. He says, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. Now, fasting and charitable giving are two signs of a truly devout person. It's safe to assume that when this man was fasting, he was replacing mealtime with prayer time. So he's a man of prayer, and if he's fasting, he's praying then. To fast twice a week shows a, a very serious commitment to the things of God. And then he says, I give a tenth of all I get. This doesn't mean that he merely tithes or gives 10% of his income. He certainly does that. It means that everything he brings into his house, he portions off a tenth of it. So if he brings in salt or flour or wheat or meat, he sets aside a tenth of that and he gives it to the temple for use among the priesthood. He gives a tenth. That's how devout this guy is. A tenth of all he gets automatically goes back to the temple. That is amazing devotion on his part. Not only that, look where he is. He's in the temple and he's praying. So he goes to the temple to pray and he's giving a tenth of all he has. And he's also um, a, a man who fasts twice a week, which makes it all the more remarkable that Jesus says this man went down to his house and was not justified. He checks every box that we would think a pious person would check. And yet he is not justified. He is under the wrath of God. Why is that? It's because he assumes that by keeping some of God's law, that makes him a law keeper. And the error is that in keeping some of the law, we don't keep all of the law. And when we don't keep all of God's law, that makes us law breakers in the eyes of God. Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. Says everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. How much do we have to, how much of the law do we have to keep in order to be saved, to be righteous? We have to keep all of it according to God, according to Deuteronomy 27, 26. If you don't keep everything written in the book of the law, you're cursed. In our minds, 
the measurement for a righteous life is, is simply more good than bad. If we can tip the scales in our favor, 51% to 49%, just a little more good than bad, then we will have lived a righteous life and be deserving of the favor of God. That's how we think, but that's not what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches is we must be 100% absolutely perfect or else we're under the wrath of God. Good intentions don't cut it. Being better than someone else doesn't cut it. Being good by the standards that good people set doesn't cut it. If we don't keep the law with 100% perfection, then we are condemned people. So are you a good person? I am convinced that you are. And are you better than a bad person? Absolutely, we can find people who are worse than you. Does that make you a righteous person? The Bible says, not a chance. You're not a perfect person, not by a long shot. God did not give us the law to make us righteous. God gave us the law to help us understand that we are lawbreakers who need a Savior. Adam and Eve couldn't keep one law. The Old Testament is filled with over 300 commands. There's no chance we're getting that right. And so what that means is that we need someone to come and rescue us from this body of sin. The law is not there to make us righteous. It is a common mistake, even by Christian people. The law is not there to make us righteous. The law is there to show us that we are lawbreakers who need rescue. So this Pharisee can argue that there's at least two ways he keeps the law of God. That's great. But that leaves hundreds of other places where he's a lawbreaker and in God's court he's condemned. Now a temptation that you and I might have with this story is we would read it and then we would try to identify the modern Pharisee. Right? Who's the person or group that just they think they're better than everyone else? They're so judgy. They're so full of themselves. I mean, they, they're obviously just, they're mean to people, and they're just convinced that God's on their side. And then having identified that person or that group, we might say something like this, God, I thank you that I am not like that person. And in so doing, we reveal our pharisaical heart. In the Pharisee, we see our own tendencies to downplay our own sin, to highlight the sin of others, and to judge ourselves as righteous for the things we do for God. That's an awful way to pray, and it's an awful way to live. But Jesus gives us an alternative. In the Pharisee, we've seen indicators of self-righteousness, but in the tax collector, second, we're going to see indicators of true righteousness. What does true righteousness look like? Well, the tax collector's prayer shows us these two indicators. And the first is humble submission to God. How can I know that I possess true righteousness? It's because of my posture before God. I have a humble submission to Him. And the tax collector's humility is seen in his posture in prayer. Look at the first line of verse 13. It says, but the tax collector standing far off would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest. The Pharisee stood in his pride, but the tax collector bows in a humble awareness of his sin. 
The point here is not that it is a sin to stand and pray or that it's automatically holier to kneel and pray. The point is that this man was a humble man and it's evidenced in the way he approached God. He's so aware of his sinfulness that he won't even lift his eyes to heaven. It's the shame of his sin and an understanding of the holiness of God, the entire otherness of God, that keeps his eyes down as he appeals to God. In the posture of this tax collector, I think we see the embodiment of the opening line of the Lord's Prayer. We looked at this just a couple of weeks ago in Luke chapter 11. And do you remember what the first petition is in the Lord's Prayer? Father, your name be honored as holy. That line is embodied in the prayer and the posture of the tax collector. When we pray that line, we're acknowledging God's complete holiness and our own sinfulness. We're exalting Him properly. He's not the God we boss around or make demands of. He's not our errand boy or our fixer man. He's the eternal, majestic, loving God of creation. He is God most holy. And for our righteousness to be right, we have to esteem Him as holy and recognize we are far from it on our own. I cannot attain righteousness on my own. I will only know it by the gift of God. All right, we okay? All right, we're okay. So my righteousness is not something I will achieve on my own. Righteousness will come to me as a gift from a holy God to a sinful man. So humble submission to God. If, I, if I'm not humble before God, I will not know his righteousness. And the second indicator of true righteousness is a total reliance on God. So I want you to look at the content of the tax collector's prayer. Also in verse 13, we've seen his posture. He won't even raise his eyes to heaven. He's striking his chest and he prays this, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I love that in this example, Jesus gives us such a brief prayer. It's just one sentence, just a few words. It's not, it's not all King Jamesy. Nothing against the King James, but you, do you know you might know people who pray in the King James? That's fine. I'm just saying it's not loquacious. It's not a lot of words. It's not elaborate. It is a simple cry from the heart. God have mercy on me, a sinner. One of my favorite Charles Spurgeon quotes is he says, um, "Verbiage is to prayer as chaff is to wheat. We don't need a lot of words. God knows our heart." And in this simple prayer, the tax collector acknowledges his sin. He knows he sinned against God and people, and he feels his sin so acutely that it creates in him a godly sorrow. And his sorrow over his sin reminds me of the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah stands in the throne room of God before the throne of God. And as he stands there, he heard the angels sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. And do you remember Isaiah's response in Isaiah chapter 6? He says, woe is me, for I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. 
Isaiah is aware of his sin and the holiness of God. In the tax collector in Isaiah, we see the same utter reliance on God. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. When we're asking for mercy, here's what we're asking. A a simple definition of biblical mercy is not receiving the punishment we deserve. When the tax collector prays for mercy, he's saying, God, don't punish me in the way I deserve. Isaiah, the same way in Isaiah chapter 6. I know the punishment I deserve. Do you think the tax collector had good things in his life that he could have appealed to to plead his case before God? Could he have come before God in prayer and said, God, I am not the worst of tax collectors. I at least have a little bit of ethics to the way I fleece people. And also, God, I I help people. With the extra money I take, I, I help other people. I, 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 this guy needed money, I gave him some money. This person needed help, I gave him some help. I guarantee you there are things this tax collector could have pointed to in his life and said, this is what makes me good. But he didn't do it. He didn't drag any of that before a holy God. He just recognized, I'm a sinner, I'm a lawbreaker, and God, I need you to have mercy on me. He relied on the mercy of God. Or you might say it this way, he believed, and his belief was credited to him as righteousness. The Bible teaches us that righteousness is not something we achieve. Righteousness is a gift that is given from God. And it is given in whole, and it is given totally. This is the gift of God. Righteousness does not come by the good we accumulate over the course of our lives. Righteousness is a gift from God. So a question you might ask is, when Jesus makes this tax collector the good guy, does that mean that he's approving of the life the tax collector was living? Far from it, because this parable is not about the tax collector's sanctification, it's about his justification. It's about the moment he throws himself on the mercy of God and perfect righteousness is given to him as a result. What should follow from that is a life of sanctification, pursuing holiness. Jesus isn't saying it doesn't matter the life he lives or how he hurts people or or what he does. That's not at all what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying what matters is that sinners find mercy from a compassionate and loving God when they turn to him. He's given righteousness as a gift from God. And so the question then that we have to ask ourselves is, am I a righteous person? How would I argue my righteousness? Well, if you start by listing off religious deeds you've done or accomplished, you're already getting a failing grade. We've already missed the whole point of this parable. Oh, I'm righteous because I've been baptized. Catholic and Protestant, just to cover all my bases. I'm I'm righteous because I, I, I serve as an elder at South Shore Baptist Church. I teach Sunday school. I serve the church in quiet ways. I care for my neighbors. I'm a faithful husband, a faithful wife. I've been a good parent. I'm righteous because of all of these things. And we've totally put ourselves in the camp of the Pharisee with that sort of argument. How can you know you're righteous? Your answer is this. 
God loves me and he made me for himself, but my sin broke my relationship with God. And Jesus, he is the perfectly righteous son of God who died in my place for my sin and rose from the dead and my faith is in him. I rely on him. I've got nothing to argue on my behalf. I just plead the blood of Christ and he has taken my sin and God's wrath on my sin and in its place he has given me his perfect righteousness. I have no righteousness of my own. I rely totally on Jesus. That's what the tax collector teaches us to do this morning, to rely totally, completely on God for this gift of righteousness. And look, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you still have to answer the righteousness question for yourself. And, and look, you probably have religious reasons to claim you're righteous. I've been to church, I'm at church today, I pray I'm spiritually minded, I, whatever those religious things are. Anyone can be spiritually minded. Or you might argue your case by, by cultural standards of righteousness. Here's what the world says makes a good person. And I check these boxes. And that stuff's impressive and it makes for good neighbors. But it does not remove the curse of your sin. You are still a lawbreaker before God. But God's gift to you is true righteousness. If you will make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. Do not trust in yourself for your own righteousness, your own justification. It will fail you. Self-righteousness condemns us always. It's a cursed way to live. But when you trust in Jesus who loves you and gave his life for you, well, today you can go to your home justified. So Jesus has taught us a lot in a really small parable. We get some heavy hitting theological themes and instruction and some really intense heart work. Jesus has given us two indicators of self-righteousness. They are um, uh, evidenced by a false comparison to others and an improper use of God's law. And then he's given us two indicators of true righteousness. It's known by humble submission to God and a total reliance on him. And so now we have to do some very serious heart work, church. Let me ask you, do you possess self-righteousness or true righteousness? Are you self-justified or are you God-justified? I want you to consider the absolute tragedy of a life lived under self-righteousness. It's a horrific way to live. This Pharisee was so convinced and by every outward appearance, we might have been convinced also of his right standing before God. But here he was on this day in the temple praying, and he went home convinced God was on his side. And yet he was under the wrath of God because he was trusting in himself. It's a tragedy of a life. I want you to consider also the tragedy of the church that lives this way. What does it look like when a church adopts the mind of this Pharisee, when a church lives in self-righteousness rather than the righteousness of Christ? Well, that church would act as a gatekeeper, pretending like they are the ones commissioned by God to judge who is in the kingdom and who is not. They would decry their enemies. They would destroy the evangelistic mission of the church. They would look at the names on these panels as people to be avoided, not pursued with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
that type of church devours people and stands under the judgment of God. So what do we do if we recognize that we are living with a self-righteous mind or an arrogant heart? Our answer comes at the very end of verse 13, the last line in this parable. Jesus said this, the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is our correction. I, I recognize in me, I, I have these Pharisee tendencies or I am full-fledged self-righteous. What do I do? Jesus says, the one who humbles himself or herself will be exalted. How do we humble ourselves? I'll give you two simple, quick pieces of advice. Here's how you humble yourself so that you'll be exalted. Number one, rely on Christ. We're going to learn from the tax collector. You have to rely on Christ. I'm not going to argue my case before him. I'm not going to compare myself to someone worse. I'm not going to highlight the things I think I deserve a Christian trophy for. I'm going to throw myself on the mercy of God. I'm a lawbreaker. I'm broken. I'm broken in my thoughts and in my life. I'm broken in God. I'm throwing myself on your mercy. Have mercy on me, a sinner. We're going to rely on Christ. It could be that you're a Christian with a theology problem this morning. A theology problem in this way that you think righteousness is accumulated by the things you do rather than understanding it the way the Bible describes it as the gift of God in total. For sure, our sanctification should increase, our holiness should increase over the course of our walk with God, but the righteousness that saves is the righteousness of Christ. We're given that at the moment we give our lives to Him. So it could be you need to fix a broken theology this morning that keeps you from relying on Christ. Romans 3.22, Paul says the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ, all who believe. It's not through keeping the law or most of the law or being better than someone worse. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. It may be you're a Christian with a hypocrisy problem this morning. And so you may need to sit with Psalm 139 and pray this, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there's any offensive way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. That's a good prayer that can put us in a place of relying on Christ. You want to rely on Christ, and second, I want to urge you to live like Christ. Humility is not just in the theoretical. Humility is in our words, in our actions, our day-to-day -day lives. Philippians chapter 2 gives us this beautiful picture of the humility of Christ who gave everything up that he might come and die on the cross for our sin. And before Paul gives us this beautiful portrait of the humility of Christ, he tells us in Philippians 2, 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. In other words, if I'm going to live like Christ, I'm going to take up my cross and follow him. I will lay down my life for others. And one of the surest cures for the arrogant heart is service to other people. Where are you, where are you serving? Who are you caring for? Where are you giving your time and your energy and your efforts? And maybe it's time to do an assessment of your life and say, if I'm going to be the kind of person who follows Christ in humility, then my schedule and my abilities have to be applied to that. It can't just be something that I amen in church because I agree with it. It's got to be the chorus of my life as I follow Christ, carrying my cross after him. Where do you serve? Who do you care for? Who are you walking alongside of, Christian? And maybe there's something here that calls you to a life of service and volunteering in some way. 
It could be that you begin to care for someone within our church or you begin to come alongside a ministry in our church or maybe you give your time to visit a local nursing home or maybe this holiday season you start serving at Father Bill's or at Wellspring in Hull or Weymouth or you find some place where your passions and your skills can be used for the glory of Christ in the service of other people. Serve people. Love them. Lift them up. Humble yourself and you'll be exalted. The book of Psalms closes with three chapters of nonstop praise to God. Just machine gun, reason after reason to praise God and to exalt His name. Some of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. And among all these reasons to praise God, there's one that jumps out to me in light of what we've studied this morning. In Psalm 149, verses 4 and 5, we are to praise the Lord because the Lord takes pleasure in His people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the faithful celebrate in triumphal glory. Let them shout for joy on their beds. The humble are saved and they praise God with joy on their beds from their homes. Will you go to your home justified today by the mercy of God? May it be so. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a righteousness that was achieved by Christ at the cross. A righteousness that he has possessed to eternity past as the sinless God the Son, creator of all things, and the one who laid down his life and rose again that we might know salvation. Thank you for righteousness that is a gift. Thank you for righteousness that is given in full. Thank you for righteousness that is given to sinners like us. Thank you for the perfect righteousness of Christ that saves us. I'm glad that righteousness is not something that we can achieve or improve upon because we would surely fail in those endeavors. But Lord, you have given it to us in full and we praise you for this incredible gift. And so we throw ourselves on your mercy. And we implore you for your grace once again, that you would be merciful to us, compassionate to us in our sin. Thank you that when we confess our sin to you, we have an advocate and we receive forgiveness. And we praise you for this. We come in confidence before you, confidence in your grace and your mercy and your compassion, confidence in the salvation that we possess through faith in Christ. Father, examine our hearts and help us to understand where in our lives we think and live like this Pharisee. And Lord, I ask that you would lead us in the way of humility as we live out the righteousness of Christ. God, this morning there's someone in here that doesn't know you as their Savior. Their argument has been, I'm a good person. Lord, give them ears to hear what you've taught us this morning. That righteousness is not in what they achieve, but it's in their trust in Christ and it comes as his gift. Let this be the day that they go home justified. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's respond in song to the word of the Lord. Would you please stand as we sing?